Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin. I'm joined here by Alex. Hey, Justin. And we're also here with Noah. Hey. Hey, guys. Uh, back at it again. And this time we have a not just a guest, but a returning guest on this podcast. He joined us for our Call Me By Your Name episode, and we are very happy to have Dimitri back. Hello, Dimitri. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's our pleasure. Well, guys, we are all here to discuss Parasite. This is the newest film from Bong Joon-ho, the uh, acclaimed and, well, I guess, Palme d'Or winning director (laughs) from this year. It's been getting a lot more attention than most uh, Korean films that I can remember in the United States uh, getting. And I think, without spoiling too much, I think we would say rightfully so. So we're going to be discussing that film. And we're because we love this film so much, we're going to be foregoing our normal segment in which we discuss a broader topic related to that movie release. It'll just give us a chance to kind of dig a little bit deeper into this film. The broader topic is just how good is Parasite? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so we will be starting this the way that we normally do with our full disclosure segment in which we discuss something recent that we've been watching. So I think maybe we'll start with you, Alex. You want to tell us what you've been watching recently? Sure. So something that I watched recently uh, is actually one of my favorite films of this calendar year. It's a movie by director Marielle Heller, whose previous film, Can You Ever Forgive Me, was definitely in my top 10 last year. It's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It is a movie ostensibly about Mr. Rogers, but truly it is more about the way that Mr. Rogers affects others in the world, specifically one magazine profile writer played by Matthew Reese, who you might know from The Americans or Brothers and Sisters. And it's just a tremendous, tremendous film. It was written by two writers from Transparent, a show that is close to my heart. Their names are Micah Fitzerman Blue and Noah Harpster. Uh, and it's just it's just a truly incredible film. Uh, it really it really touched me emotionally in ways that I was surprised by. I had previously seen last year's Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary about Mr. Rogers, and and that affected me pretty deeply as well. But I was just surprised by how deeply this movie affected me. It's fundamentally a film about the power of empathy and forgiveness in the world and what truly important forces they are when used properly. Mr. Rogers, as played by Tom Hanks, has just a tremendous amount of compassion and acceptance of others that is, it's hard to put into words. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's just, it's the strengths of these, of this film is difficult to express for me because it is something that I was so emotionally invested in. I should say, aside from that really profound message, uh, it also has some interesting visual components to it. In a lot of ways, it honors the spirit of the Mr. Rogers television series in ways that I was not expecting that made it kind of fun and interesting. There's, For instance, there's some 
uh, claymation and stop motion stuff. There's a lot of puppetry. There's kind of switch between typical cinematography and and video format. And so there's a lot of like just other stuff happening. But at the heart of this movie, it's just about it's just about a a sad dad and and his son and his son's son. And, uh, you know, I'm a sucker for those kind of movies. Ultimately, (laughs) Uh, Chris Cooper is in this movie playing Matthew Rees' uh, estranged father, and he does a really great job playing a very particular kind of dad who you can immediately recognize and would be easy to caricature, but he brings a lot of uh, nuance to that performance uh, without selling out any of the hard edges of him, and I really appreciated that. And that's kind of another thing that makes this movie really special. There's a lot of movies out there about like the importance of, you know, community and, and, and compassion and, you know, finding the best in people and accepting people for who they are. And a lot of those movies sand down the rough edges of the world uh, in order to prove their point. And this movie doesn't do that at all. It doesn't run away from the, from the ugly parts of the world and the ugly parts of humanity it just dares you to accept it anyway uh in a in a pretty beautiful message and yeah so i definitely recommend everybody go out and see it and i'm really happy that i did even though i cried a lot (laughs) while watching it (laughs) i have to ask did it take some time for you to acclimate to hanks as mr rogers i think would say that he's probably capable of he's a fantastic actor but he he does kind of give off a different vibe than maybe someone like Mr. Rogers had. Did it did it take time for you to kind of get used to that or It honestly did not. I feel like he almost mm. immediately slipped into that character in a way that I was very surprised by. Mm. I I had heard out of the fall film festivals that it was kind of like he's more doing a Hanks thing than a Mr. Rogers thing, but it's okay cuz people like Tom Hanks. And I kind of disagree with that. By the end of the film, I had like he just was Mr. Rogers for me. He was Fred Rogers. Like he just, I had forgotten that I was watching Tom Hanks. And to the point where at the end of the film, they show an image of the actual Fred Rogers. And I was like, oh, right. That's what he actually looks like because he had just so fully commanded this, this really just, it's, it's almost transgressive how empathetic this man was. <laughs> and it's just, and he just really captured that in a way that I, that I found very affecting. And I thought the other performances in the movie too were very good. Matthew Reese as basically the protagonist, he has to really go through a lot of stuff in this film and he really, really does a good job portraying it. I think that his performance in The Americans is definitely his best performance that I've seen to date, but this this comes close to being as as strong. And the whole cast is really tremendous, I think. Mm, very nice. Well, I I look forward to seeing that. Yeah, me too. And it feels like a good film that I could see like with my family, which uh <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> as much as I love Parasite, unfortunately I don't think I could ever watch it with them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god no <laughs> i uh a friend of the show uh manish uh, martha uh he wrote on twitter that mario heller makes nice movies about ugly emotions and i think that this mm. is definitely an example of that i really can't put it better well said all right so uh why don't we go to our guests next dimitri what's something that's been good for you recently this past few weeks i've actually been watching uh the rick burns documentary series new york Rick Burns, which I recently found out is actually Ken Burns' younger brother, uh, and he also went into documentaries. And uh, this is a 17-hour 
documentary series on the history of New York from the original Dutch colony until uh, 9-11 and its aftermath, where the last one was actually an extra episode that was added after the fact, since the series was released before 9-11. But in 2003, they added this extra episode of like a three-hour series, three-hour long history on the history of the World Trade Center up until the like horrific events that happened and then the city's aftermath and the symbolism of what that meant for the city of coming together. I mean, I grew up in the New York area uh, and for a long time lived in New York proper. I uh, remember 9-11 happening as well as like historical event that I lived through. And it was just really fascinating to see like this 400 year history all like laid out in front of you in a consistent manner and how through different historical periods, New York had this like symbolism for the world. Like early on, it was a symbolism for like a colonial capitalism. And I found it interesting when they were comparing, contrasting New York with Boston, for example, where the goal of the original Boston was freedom from persecution in England, whereas the goal in New York was literally pure, raw commercial capitalism. And I think that that distinction really did carry on into the history of the city relative to other cities where, as we all know, New York is like the commercial center of the world, or at the least was from, unquestionably so, from the late 1800s to, I'm guessing still now, although that might be challenged in the coming decades. And yeah, it was just wild to see how much of a symbol the city was across the world, especially in the late 1800s when there was a major boom of immigration. There was a major boom of in- industrialization. And all of a sudden, New York became this world symbol of like globalization. I don't think it had the connotations it has today of of like enforcing Western culture on the world. I think at that point, it was the globalization of accepting, obviously with major asterisks in terms of the extent to which people were accepted, but nonetheless, like allowing people from all around the world to enter and create their lives there. And it was just really interesting and inspiring to see that and see also what kind of conflicts arose from that uh, and how New York was also at the center of people revolting against various negative aspects of industrialization. Like, for example, uh, there was like a fire in a shirt factory where people were literally jumping out and there was no, there were no protections for them whatsoever. Uh, and that They literally were falling on like the spikes of the fences outside and getting impaled. And that was like a big spark of like the American like labor rights movement. I don't know. I really recommend this documentary and definitely gave me a much deeper understanding and appreciation for the city that I lived in and has always been a bigger in my life and seeing it in a much broader sense of where it is in history. Uh, just fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'm assuming you've seen like Ken Burns documentaries prior to this. Yeah, actually the last time I came on the show, I was discussing Ken Burns jazz documentary. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Did you notice like any kind of similarities? Do you feel like he's he's just has sort of ways to distinguish himself? To be honest, I totally thought it was a Ken Burns documentary until I <laughs> <laughs> until I googled it. I definitely think that stylistically it's near identical. Like they literally even had at least two of the voice actors that narrated various Ken Burns documentaries I saw narrated large chunks of this one. So it kind of just felt like he is just following in his big brother's footsteps completely. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's certainly got quite a body of work to emulate there. So. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Uh, but yeah. I think if this one, this one stands with Ken Burns' greatest. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I really do. 
maybe not in the sense of being a unique work like Parasite. Uh, <laughs> in this, because he definitely learned a lot from his brother. I'm guessing. Uh, I don't want to narrativize their family. Who knows? Maybe, maybe Rick sure. Burns is the real genius, and Ken Burns took the ideas. <laughs> 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 but uh, I thought it was great, and uh, I I really liked the scope of it. Yeah. What's the most interesting thing that you learned about New York that you didn't know before? It's a great question. One thing I didn't know much was what New York was doing from like its original Dutch founding and when it got taken over by the British until the late 1800s, because you kind of don't really hear that much about New York in that period. So for example, during the Civil War, and was a center to a lot of really huge and unfortunate anti-black, I don't know what to call it, but it's not a riot because it was just the white people killing the black people. Uh, I, I think they are referred to as race riots. Fair. I almost want to call them pogroms, even though I know that's like more content-wise about like Jews in Eastern Europe, but it kind of feels like that. So I had no idea that that was going on. And, and it was interesting just seeing this 100-plus-year blip of New York history. Indeed, it didn't seem like that much interesting was stuff was happening until sort of the mid-1800s and the release of, like, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Hmm. One thing it also made me appreciate is, I don't know, when we covered, like, Walt Whitman in English class in school, in my head, he was just, oh, this random floating figure. You know, like most kids, I wasn't like attuned to like the historical context of these writers, but I found sort of they were really using Walt Whitman as a central like narrator of what New York was in the mid 1800s and sort of the beginning boom of like everybody like walking in the city everywhere, all these like ports opening up, like immigrants starting to come in. And there was just this like liveliness that was there that, I don't know, just seemed really interesting. And it was cool to know that that went back even 150 years. I don't know if there were like many super factual things I just wasn't aware of, aside from like more details that I probably slept through from U.S. history class that I should have remembered. <laughs> but yeah, I guess that was a huge thing. And then regarding more modern times, I think the political figures that animated the city, in particular, uh, Al Smith is an interesting figure that I was aware of his existence, but I didn't know just how prominent a person he was in the history of the city and bringing it towards a like more progressive place to be and live. So I found that was interesting. And then Later on, learning about LaGuardia, who played a kind of similar role a few decades later, and in turn, descending into evil, man, parallel to LaGuardia, Robert Moses, who I was aware of, but had no idea just the scale of how this like hyper-industrialist, futurist person affected mostly negatively people's lives, and would despite never having political office. Yeah, for sure. Man, I mean, there's quite a bit. <laughs> I'm sure, I can't imagine like all the history that he had to sift through and you know, probably the tough choices he had to make about what to include and what to leave out. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think we'll next go to Noah. What's been good for you lately, Noah? I saw another excellent non-English movie that is definitely going to end up in my top five at the end of the year. This is a movie that has been making the rounds uh, in theaters here in Europe over the past few months. I don't know yet if and when it's going to come out in the States. But it was also at Cannes this year and won the Queer Palm. And also, the director also won the award for Best Screenplay. And this is a film by the French director Céline uh, Siama called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm. 
starring Noemi Merlant and Adele Hanel. Yes, so excited to see this. It comes out here in like a couple weeks. Okay, Alex, do you know do you know what the uh, synopsis of the movie is? I just know that it's like a sexy movie about French lesbians, <laughs> and it's amazing. <laughs> well, it is a sexy movie about French lesbians, and it is amazing. But to be slightly more specific. <laughs> It's. I, I'm not entirely sure what period of time it's supposed to be set in. Maybe sometime in the 1800s. But a young woman who is uh, an artist and who does who does paintings and portraits is summoned to a, a very remote mansion by the elderly matriarch of some wealthy noble family, and she's given the task of creating a portrait of the woman's daughter, who has been called back to the family house um, from the nunnery where she'd been living under tragic circumstances and is basically being married off to ensure that her family maintains its position and its status and its wealth. But in order to seal the marriage, the potential groom wants to have a portrait of the woman first so he can decide if, I don't know, if she's pretty enough, I guess. Men really don't play a role in this movie at all. Like, it's male characters are so rare that when a man appears on screen, it's actually jarring. It's like, whoa, oh my god, that's right, men exist too. Uh, which I, I think was for the better. So, but the, the the daughter, of course, is not like she's not happy about this. You know, she doesn't like being in the countryside. She doesn't want to marry, you know, whoever the hell it is that she's being forced to marry. And she's driven at least one painter away already by simply refusing to sit. And so the mother brings in this young portraiteer, this young artist, and says, well, you know, you're a young woman. I've told my daughter that you're just here to be a companion for her. You'll you'll take her for walks and stuff like that. So don't, but don't tell her, don't let on that you're here to paint her and just try to, you know, get as many glimpses of her face as possible. And then, you know, in your spare time, you can do the portrait. The movie is really like, it, it just takes place in and around this mansion where the the family lives and it's often just these two characters these two young women walking and looking at the sea and talking with each other but it's so so engaging and engrossing simply because the way that the relationship develops between the two the way that it builds slowly is a great example for how when you have the right performers in a role with the right chemistry between them even the most basic and simplistic of stories can be so emotionally gripping and engaging just because you're so invested in seeing how these two interact with each other and in how their relationship and how their love for each other blossoms over a relatively short period of time. I think it's like a couple of weeks. And then there are a few skips forward in time at the end. The two main actresses are just so incredibly engaging and they have an amazing like their their banter with each other and the way that they're able to communicate so much through just their facial expressions and just their eyes is deeply deeply satisfying mm. to just experience the the artistry of the filmmaking of the writing and of the performances and how everything just perfectly meshes together to create this deep and compelling and satisfying love story the screenplay is also really good uh, just the way that bits of dialogue and th and themes of loneliness and of alienation are are revisited. There's so many aspects of the characters that are revisited, and you you see them in a different in a different light over the course of the of the film. Uh, a certain piece of music is used to express longing and passion 
and desire in a way that I wasn't expecting, uh, a piece from Vivaldi's Four Seasons. All of these ways that the screenplay and the performances and the the, the visuals complement each other. It's just, it's so, it's such a deeply satisfying movie because from beginning to end, it's so thoroughly well made. I'd love to hear your thoughts when once it's available stateside. Yeah, it's going to only be out for one week in New York and LA. So yeah. And then it's yeah. and then it's getting a wider release on Valentine's Day of next year. So studio is definitely behind it. Wow, an actual reason for Valentine's Day to exist. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. I mean, this is definitely one of those movies that like was one of the breakout films that can't and I'm really excited to see it. Just looking over Celine Scama's filmography, she's responsible for so many films that are currently sitting in my Netflix queue awaiting me to watch that I haven't gotten around to yet. <laughs> um, and uh, definitely didn't realize that. Uh, for instance, she wrote My Life as a Zucchini, which was the uh, Academy Award nominated mm. animated film from a few years back. And of course, Girlhood, I think, is her most acclaimed film prior to this one but yeah i'm just i just everybody who i like and respect loves this movie and it makes and so that's why i'm gonna go see it <laughs> yeah well add me to that well i was just gonna mention really quickly that i i have seen previous film from sima which is girlhood uh, that i would highly recommend that certainly makes me excited for her new film but so just to close this this segment out what i've been watching lately i'm gonna mention a film that actually alex and i saw <laughs> coincidentally on the same day that alex saw a beautiful day in the neighborhood uh which yes. is ryan johnson's latest film knives out which is just a ton of fun funnily enough if i hadn't seen parasite this would probably be the most fun i've had in the theater this year um <laughs> And for those who don't know, it's a murder mystery, a whodunit, uh, very much in the tradition of something like Agatha Christie, set in an America that is very much right now. I'm sure that it's going to get yeah, some like, criticism. <laughs> like, literally, it seems like it was made last week. Like, it's very... Yeah, it, yes. Present. Even though, apparently, he's been working on this before um, uh, the current uh, presidential administration. But in any case... Um, At it, one point, the family has a political argument that I think my family had two weeks ago. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, this is unfortunately a film that is... It's very much about the plot and about uh, the twists and turns. In some ways, it's very traditional. It has a lot of things you would expect from a murder mystery of this kind. Uh, the the reveals, the kind of, you know, the we do eventually get the sort of explanation of everything that happened, see visually what happened. Um, but I also think it bucks tradition a little bit by sort of setting us up with this, uh, at least from what we understand, like a mystery that is just kind of waiting to be solved. Like we think we know what's happened and you're waiting for the detective who is, whose name is, oh gosh, his name is Benoit Blanc. Uh, he is described by Lakeith Stanfield's character who plays a detective as the last of the gentleman sleuths, which is just such a... Such a thing no one would ever say. Um, and that's why I love it so much. And uh, you're waiting for him to kind of figure it out. He seems like very smart. He seems to have a lot of experience in this area. And it kind of gives you the idea like something else might be afoot. And uh, just you could just kind of have to go from there. So I really don't want to betray too much about this other than to say like you absolutely need to see it. It's incredibly fun. It's got a lot of social commentary that is not particularly subtle uh, in any way. But man, just the performances here are so entertaining. Uh, all the people in the family, 
Um, I think the biggest, I don't think this is a spoiler necessarily. It was kind of a pleasant surprise to me is that really the main character of this is the character played by Ana de Armas, who we've talked about on this podcast before, um, playing the character Joy in uh, Blade Runner 2049. She's been in a few other movies since then. And she's really the kind of heart and soul of this of this movie. She's really the main character, which is a very pleasant surprise. She gets a lot of she gets a lot to do, and I think she really proves herself as an actress. I'd really like to see what she does from here. But the supporting cast is really tremendous as well. I know like for for me, as someone who's seen all of Ryan Johnson's film, his sense of humor is very much in line with mine. So a lot of the humor just worked like gangbusters here. Chris Evans is very entertaining, playing the young, kind of spoiled son of this of this rich family, uh, who also seems to know a little bit more than he's letting on. And uh, I don't know. It was just kind of a rollicking good time. He wears the hell out of that sweater throughout the yes. film, by the way. Yes, he does. Yes. Some I read a review where the uh, I forget who the critic was now, but they described the the house that this takes place in as like an I spy book come to life. And I just, I was like so angry that I was like, oh, that's so perfect. But yeah, this is just, it's a feast for the eyes. It's incredibly densely plotted in a very entertaining way where I didn't necessarily feel lost, but just kind of enjoyed every sort of twist and turn. So uh, yeah, so high rec- recommendation for me on Knives Out. Yeah, I'll second that. I had a lot of fun watching that movie. The cast is really good. Christopher Plummer, I don't think you mentioned, he is the yeah. uh, the patriarch of the family and uh, the one who has died at the very beginning of it. And despite dying basically before the film starts, he gets a number of really fun, memorable scenes in mm-hmm. flashback that works really well, especially his relationship with Anna Darmas is yeah. uh, very, very good and uh, entertaining and surprising, not necessarily what you might expect that relationship to be. Yes. And very eccentric in a very entertaining way. Yes. As eccentric as you would hope a, uh, a millionaire best-selling mystery writer would be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's just really fun. Jaden Martell is in that. You might know him from It or um, Midnight Special. Mm-hmm. He plays a very funny uh, character. They refer to him as a Nazi troll at various points in the movie. He is only ever seen in his cell phone um, wearing a suit with slick back hair. Um, he is a little like teenage <laughs> Republican uh, and he's he's very fun in that role. Everybody's really good. It's it's a It's a fun time. I kind of, I don't know, I wanted it to be a little bit better, I guess. I, as something written by Ryan Johnson, I had a, like really high expectations, and it kind of just it it didn't quite hit those peaks that I was looking for from it. But it is very entertaining and a lot of fun, and you could definitely do worse. Yeah, so Parasite, this is a film, I think we've already stated, like, all four of us really love this. I think if it's not our, if, if it's not all our favorite films, then it's certainly in the conversation. So I wanted to start not by asking our opinions, something a little bit different, which is just, I guess I wanted to get, what was your experience watching this movie? Wild and fun. <laughs> Yeah, it was just like so unexpected throughout. And I had been told to expect the unexpected and still I didn't expect it. So um, (laughs) (laughs) that made it a lot of that just made it very entertaining throughout. It's not just fun. There's a lot of interesting things to consider and a lot of like deep emotional kind of moments in the film. But overall, it's just it's like a thrill ride from beginning to end. 
there are thrill ride films where the experience of seeing it for the first time ever is fun and engaging, but then you don't really think about the film afterwards. Or if you watch it again, like as as soon as that initial thrill is gone, the film sort of fades a bit. This is not one of those films. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like every time I thought I knew what movie I was watching, something <laughs> would happen and it would shift and then it would become yeah. a whole other thing. And And that's just delightful. That's just such a rare experience. Yeah, I was going to say something similar where at first I thought the movie was going to be like a dark comedy. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden it became kind of like a very grim, serious tragedy about like deep social issues in society. <laughs> and then like almost escalating to weird kinds of absurdism. Yeah. Definitely walked away thinking, what was that? Like what just <laughs> happened to me? <laughs> Yeah, I just, I'm so glad I didn't know a lot about this movie before I saw it. I just knew it had a ton of acclaim. I had seen films from this director before. Admittedly, not as many as I would like. I still haven't seen a lot of his better known ones. I've seen like Snowpiercer and Okja, pretty much. This movie is slightly more subtle than Snowpiercer. Uh, Yeah, I would say so. Interesting the Chris Evans connection there. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so this was something where... I was so enmeshed and and so gratified with the like the mood that he would focus on in a particular moment. And then when the shifts happen, it would just instead of like making you disappointed, it would actually like amp you up to figure out, okay, what where is this film going next? Like I thought mm. I knew what this film was, and now it's like not only is it changing tone, it seems to be changing genre. <laughs> when it goes from like a con movie to like a dark, like horror thriller to all of a sudden it's like an outright farce. I mean, there are just like tonal, there's just like so much tonal leapfrogging in this that feels so confident. I mean, I just, I can't imagine like being an actor in this film, like getting this script and just thinking like, I can't believe I'm about to bring this story. to life. <laughs> um, I just, I mean, I just have to imagine that was like so gratifying yeah. for, for the actors. Yeah. Here. There's like the moment where it goes from, Oh my God, there's someone living in the basement to, <laughs> Oh my God, we need to cook this meal for the little boy before he gets home. It's like yeah. such a crazy <laughs> shift of like several different like tones and just everything like you're saying. And it's just like in that moment, the way that they so expertly land like all of those different reveals and like the pacing of it is just so expertly done that I was just just fully in the hands of a master at that point where I'm yes. just like okay I will just I am with you from here on to the rest of the movie wherever <laughs> you take me I'm fine yeah and I don't know about the rest of you guys but that scene where we're following well actually we're, we're sort of behind um, the maid character who's come back to the house saying she left something <laughs> and the camera's just following her into this like dark dank almost like underground cavern we're just descending and we have no idea you just hear her shouting and I don't know about you guys but I really I for a second I thought like there was gonna be something like bizarre and like almost like it was gonna version like sci-fi horror at any moment and just yeah. the fact that like i felt like it was mm. gonna work even if it went that way i think just shows the kind of confidence that that i have in 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 bong joon ho and as the filmmaker here i love how the movie has such bonkers bizarre humor at times in the midst of this whole nighttime sequence that we're talking about with the the old nanny of the house coming back and then just di- disappearing into this 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 like subterranean bunker of a basement, the family follows her down, and then you get their shot. Like 
they, they hear the sounds of like someone trying to push something and then they turn the corner and you get the shot of the woman like three feet in the air completely parallel to the ground <laughs> trying to yeah. use her entire yeah. body to move a bookcase and it's just it's one of the the single funniest images i've seen in a movie this year yeah that was hilarious. it's like this it's like this overweight middle-aged woman going and just her entire body is like stretched out parallel to the ground but so i think like one of the best parts uh, like one of the best things about this movie can be really summed up in that sequence because it starts out with a great commentary on class where this woman comes up who they have banished into the unknown and they don't want to let her into the house because they are afraid that she will threaten their their newly found status in some way and then yeah. they but then they finally are basically guilted into allowing her entry she goes in goes down the stairs you hear all this sort of like commotion and you're like what is happening down there what is it that she wanted there's a lot of like like uh tension building and building they go down and see her in the way that noah described which is patently absurd <laughs> which is just such a great like a reveal such a great turn that you're not expecting and then they help her move the thing and then you proceed to go down into the sub basement where Even it's now fully down. a horror movie <laughs> But then it all of a sudden goes right into like a full on horror movie where now they're descending yeah. into the into the darkness where a monster might be there. And it's just like the, <laughs> yeah. the amount that they are able to cover in that short amount of time is just a great microcosm for everything that is good about this movie. And it's really yeah. it requires so much confidence to be able to make that that many turns and that many twists and that many reveals and that much of shifting of tones in such a concentrated amount of time. The fact that they could pull that off is just truly extraordinary and why this is currently my favorite movie of the year. And it never felt contrived or goofy. Like there are a lot of movies that take yeah. these twists and turns, but they're often like coded as like dumb movies. This movie right. gave you this ethereal, surreal vibe from the beginning where it just elevated you to a point where all of these things were just totally possible in that universe. Yeah. Like while still feeling like it had stakes in our world. It's like six potential jumping the shark moments all up in a row. And the movie threads through all of them without ever actually jumping the shark. Yeah, exactly. They all feel rooted in something. They feel rooted in the kind of like class commentary that he's going for. I know he's I think in interviews he's talked about how he sort of set out to make this film about South Korea particularly, but he realized that there are just it's so a lot of that stuff is just so universal and I think why it's connected even outside of South Korea. I think there's there's a part of us that's just we love seeing how this family who is of you know of a, of such a low social standing, we love seeing how ambitious they are. We love seeing the kinds of schemes that they could. We love seeing them get one over on this rich family. And yet we also really understand them as a family. The way that I think he depicts their relationships with one another is very like matter of fact. And he doesn't draw a ton of attention to it, but it's so built up just in the way that they interact with one another that by the time we get to the climax of this film, where the family is proving their love for one another, where they're literally like laying down their life in some way, or like, like it just makes so much sense because he's built that up over the course of this movie mm. in an inc incredibly subtle way. Well, and I think that's also a testament 
to the acting because the because as you yeah. say the the characters themselves within the plot don't have a ton of opportunities to show a lot of affection for each other or give you like a fully yeah. fleshed out understanding of how those relationships work but the actors fill in those blanks completely and you really get a really strong sense of all of the different levels of relationship at play within the context of this family and within the context of the other family that is kind of like their mirror mm-hmm. selves in certain ways that is very interesting yeah i thought the moment where uh, they all had gotten the jobs at that home and the family was away on the camping trip and they had that like sort of peaceful tranquil time alone before the maid came back (laughs) and they were sort of just hanging out on the couch like kind of talking about life and talking about how uh the daughter of the family uh seems like she could fit in into this new rich world etc and we're just you just got this feeling like this family had a moment to breathe together and like was like Mm -hmm. looking at the stars and maybe in fact they were because of the beautiful home that had that glass wall (laughs) and just Mm. sort of like (laughs) contemplating their their place in the universe uh and i thought that was a weirdly nice like kind of romantic in the general sense scene that was of course immediately disturbed by the impending shift (laughs) shift to the quasi horror film (laughs) well but and before it's disturbed by that it's also disturbed by a little bit of morality that 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 seeps into these characters in different ways as they truly like live in that their accomplishment because that that scene that you're talking about is them finally all of the fruits of their labor has come to fruition and they are getting to for this one moment live like the rich people do yeah but while still honoring themselves and their actual identities not the false identities that they've had to put on to exist in this world and it's very interesting that that is the moment where the characters start to wrestle with the cost of what they had done and start to like that lingering guilt about the ways in which they dispatched these other people who worked for the family who Mm. you know they also were not well off they're not upper class people, the people that they took advantage of. I mean, they had somebody in a bunker. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) So like the real victims are of their quest to attain a certain status that they hadn't previously are not the family that they're conning. It's all of the people who they got the family to fire. And so in that moment, they start to question that a little bit. And they have this interesting back and forth where the daughter is the one who says, no, like you have to focus on yourself and taking care of us and not worry about those other people because nobody worries about us. Like we have to be the ones to worry about ourselves. We can't worry about them. And then sure enough, What one of those people that have been cast out come back and opens up this whole Pandora's box. And I think that that's a very crucial part of the class commentary on display there. Oh, it very much is. Because one of the biggest takeaways that I've came out of the movie was, of course, this kind of like the tragedy of this family buying into the capitalist dream instead of having common cause with members of their own class because the way in which they so quickly turn on other poor people in order to get what they need is just so sad when you think about it and it's so accurate I think in a lot of ways in terms of what you see in just broader society where if there was this coming together this rising class consciousness these this rich family at the top would not necessarily be able to live the way that they are. But instead, capitalism has trained us to think of ourselves only as individuals and as our families as as the only things that we have to look after first. And so we have to be ambitious within that narrow frame 
and not worry about the cost to other people like us. And I think the way that they handle this stuff could be so didactic and preachy and like moralistic, and it never is. It's just there for you to see in a really interesting way. And if you just want to watch it as like a fun thriller con movie, you can also watch it that way. And it's equally as entertaining. And I think that that's yeah. really, that's incredibly difficult to pull off. I really respect what Bong Joon-ho did yeah, here. I, I find it very powerful how the film reflects on and shows how uh, in, in systems like this, it, instead of people being able to be to see clear-eyed the structural inequalities that you know allow for such, such differences between the incredibly splendid house of the wealthy family and the terrible bug-infested flood-prone alleyways where the other family and people sort of in their in similar situations well, literally got urinated on yeah literally yeah um but <laughs> yeah. that do that doesn't lead to people saying like okay why is it that we've ended up here and they've ended up there it instead leads to a, a sort of internalized self-loathing where each sort of individually assumes yeah. well okay it must be my fault because i'm just too lazy or i'm not smart enough to you know get out of the get out of the dirt pile here and you know get up to the wealthy part of town and that feeds on itself that you know rather than you know join together each looks at the products of the structural of this structural inequality which are the wealthy people and says oh they're they're truly admirable people i found it incredibly funny and poignant and tragic how this one character who we find out has been living in a dungeon for years like how long has he been there yeah that the rich family is not even aware yeah, well, exists. they're not even aware <laughs> yeah. he exists but he like he has a like a wall of worship dedicated to the father of the rich family i was like oh he's a true you know he's a hero he, respect yeah, yeah, like, yeah he literally shouts respect <laughs> yeah i've i've never seen a more evocative uh presentation of the believers of trickle down economics than in that character's yeah. arc oh it's literally like, it's, trickling down that whole character is like the movie getting right up in your face and saying hey here's a big statement <laughs> hope you're paying attention <laughs> but he's also a scary monster that lives in the basement to like the little boy like it's like he yeah. he represents this existential threat to both the poor family that is trying to carve out a place for themselves in the world and to the rich family in this way where they're more he's like truly a monster that is haunting them and meanwhile he has this profound you know uh, like Stockholm Syndrome-esque belief that he owes everything to this family. And I think like that's just so smart and complex and just a really well-observed of a certain aspect of of society. And it's just like, it's just great. <laughs> it's just, it's really great. Totally. Yeah, there's, I think the, the strength of this film versus other films about class consciousness and class warfare is that it's, it points the finger at the system as opposed to the rich, which I think is more typical. And not that yeah. the rich get away yeah. scot-free here, <laughs> but uh, I would like more of the criticism I think is levied at the system because, like you said, Alex, because of the way that they sort of pursue their ambitions in this way and that it's about getting one over on another. And I love the fact that the complications that arise mm. with the maid and her husband happens because of the overreaching of the family in terms of what they think they can get from this 
this other couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's mm. really interesting. But just like that one little thing tips them over into this place where once she learns that they're part of this, that they're all part of the same family and what that could mean to the rich family when they find out, she's holding this phone up like it's a gun. <laughs> and yeah. it's just like, it's both like pathetic and makes so much sense in the, like it's crazy, but it makes so much sense in the context of the movie. But in that moment, they so could have made the other choice where oh we're all these people living off of this family and trying to exploit Mm -hmm. them for our own means let's just work together to continue to do that in a way where we're all protected and instead they immediately Mm -hmm. turn on each other in a way that's so tragic and really results in true calamity Mm -hmm. to be fair they did poison her so if she were ever skeptical uh, that they had done anything, I understand why she wouldn't be too fond of trusting them. Yes. Yeah, that is absolutely true. She did. They did poison her and risk her life in order to get her fired. So that is entirely fair. Something I find especially sad is at the end of all this, all the, the craziness that happens, the primary, I would say the primary main character is the son um, from within the poor family who are called the Kims. It, he's the one who like who starts this whole ball rolling with trying to to get involved with this rich family. You know, at the end of the movie, when he's looking back at all the bizarre and terrible and tragic stuff that's happened, um, what's the conclusion he draws from that? Become rich. It doesn't matter how, doesn't matter through what method. I just, the solution to all this is I just got to get rich. And once I'm rich, it'll all be good. It'll all It'll all have been worth it. Well, not that it'll all have been worth it. It's just that now it's like he the shift in his character is that he's no longer concerned about his status in life. He now only wants to work to help his family, specifically his father. Um, But in order to do so, he realizes that he needs to opt into the system, which he was trying to opt out of the entire movie. Like his whole plan was, Mm. well, I'm not going to opt into this capitalistic system. I'm going to kind of be smarter than it and feed and feed off of it in creative ways. Like Mm. that is what a con man is. A con man isn't someone who goes out and gets a job to support his family. He's someone who like tries to subvert the systems of society in order to bend towards his will because he's smarter than it. And he yeah. and by the end, he realizes, no, I need to buy into this system so that way I can fully help and support the family that relies on me, which is exactly the opposite mm-hmm. of what he should learn at the end of the movie. But that is what that is what you learn as you grow up. And when you like the common arc, I think that a lot of people have is, oh, I don't need to buy into all of this stuff that my family did that society tells me I'm going to like go my own way and figure out my own thing. And I don't need, and I hate capitalism and like, I don't believe in money and like all that kind of stuff that like, like arrogant kids say. (laughs) And then at the Mm. end, it's like, oh no, I need to buy into this system because that's the only way that I can truly support the people who I love. But that's not the only way that he could do it. There's other things that he could do instead, and that's this, and that's the tragedy of it. I have to say, it was the effectiveness of how the movie brings that arc of his full circle that kind of salvaged the ending. Number of a number of the characters have ended up dead, and basically now the father of the the Kim family is hiding out in the bunker, and the mother and son are stuck outside and trying to pick up the pieces of what's happened. And his decision that, okay, I have to get rich now, it has the primary motivation of, and then I'll buy this house someday, and then my dad can walk free again. I was a little bit worried up to that point with the movie because I thought that the the reveal through the, the flickering lights suggesting that 
the the dad could be alive and could be hiding out in the house up until that point i thought it was really brilliant then when it turns into the morse code is then a letter where the father explains exactly what he did <laughs> yeah it's so detailed too right yeah like just thinking about doing that all in morse code that's <laughs> crazy yeah i mean i mean not just that i like as that whole scene was developing i was thinking the whole time mm, okay a little bit too much information i don't know if i'm on board with this but then they they justify that by this reveal is then what sets up that final moment with the son that reveals the extent to which he has now been thoroughly changed as a person from what's happened and then when the film ended on that note i was like okay now it now now it's okay that they went that far <laughs> well, tra changed in, as I said, in a very tragic way where he is now forced into yeah. the system that he's been trying to rebel against this whole time, that all of the audience in the movie wants to rebel against as you're watching it, mm -hmm. if you're watching it closely enough. I think that yeah. the ending is brilliant because of that. It is. like it, it Up to the point where it looks like the film almost portrays it actually happening, like he, he appears at the house as a wealthy buyer – uh, and his dad walks out and the family is reunited. At that point, I thought, okay, is the film, is this what's actually happening? But then no, the film cuts away and it it's just his fantasy right. of what he, he wants to happen. And then I thought, okay, good. For a second there, I was worried that the film was going to end on an, a very discordant note with everything that had happened before. But <laughs> yeah, then it didn't. I was, no, it I was very have. relieved. <laughs> yeah, I had the same thing as Noah where I really thought that the kid actually did just get rich and they saved his dad. So I was... Also glad to see that they didn't go that route. I didn't know what to feel necessarily about the ending, in part because I think the movie had like slogged me so many times that I was already kind of walking out of the movie in awe even before the ending happened. <laughs> but at first it was very bleak, like the sister died. Uh, I was surprised that the son yeah. had survived. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with what you guys are saying. The fact that he took the lesson that he just has to get wealthy, which... To be honest, maybe morally, I think that's the wrong lesson to have taken. But if from a purely pragmatic perspective, if one does not assume society to be changeable, which that's kind of still up in the air, uh, then maybe he's even right. Maybe he knows that's the only possible way. And in their world, it probably is the only possible way. And furthermore, even, no matter what, that's the only way for sure that he would ever save his father because he's not going to escape from prison unless they keep doing a scheme like him continuing to live in the basement or under the protection of that home. <laughs> and a thing I thought was really interesting as a side note of that was that the wealthy have homes where you could hide people like full time away from the police. And then it's just safe. Like it really felt like the dad was obviously he's still like stuck in this bunker, which is horrible, but the wealthy have such a strong layer of protection away from the world in their homes that you could just literally live in the basement there as a fugitive for life. And I thought that was an interesting like side commentary that was striking. Like, huh, the police aren't just going to go searching oh, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, that bunker is there because it's like in case like there's a nuclear blast from North Korea or whatever. And True. that, yeah. and that is a note that's notable because it's this idea that they are fully insulated. They could be regardless yeah. of world events 
or criminality, like if somebody comes to their door because they committed a crime or if the world comes to their door to try to commit harm on them, they are insulated and protected because of their wealth and their status in a way that these people who literally Mm -hmm. live exposed halfway underground, halfway above ground, and whose whole life gets washed away in a flood that the mother, like that's another great scene is like you see this... like this horrendous flood, right? That happens, um, which is so well created. The whole entire that whole entire set, that whole entire neighborhood was created on a on a soundstage. They created that whole like a like a tank to in order to make that uh, that look as effective as it did, wow. and it is really it's, incredible. Wow, and it's truly like biblical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. It looks like to the point where it's like not only is there rain from above, but like the waters from below too. Yeah, like the toilets yeah. are spitting up and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're drowning in feces and urine. It's it's awful. And then you see them later, like they all had to go to this like mass like evacuation center and they're all and they're sleeping yeah. on the floor and and they all of that like the entire community's worldly possessions have been kind of just thrown into a pile for anybody to take because there's no mm. you know, that no one has property anymore. Everything's been destroyed. And then you get this moment where the mother of the of the rich family is on the phone, is like, Yeah. I'm so glad that it rained last night because you know we hadn't rained in a while and we really needed it. It's gonna yeah. it's gonna make the grass better for the for the party or whatever. And you're just like Jesus Christ! Like she has yeah. no idea. Like it's not even a yeah. thought for her to think. Oh, how did this storm affect another part of the city that I live in? Like it's not even a consideration. She's just like, oh, thank yeah. goodness it rained. It's so cutting. This wealthy family literally lives in this like neighborhood that looks like a maze where you have to like go through these weird channels mm. to even find the house and in turn to go back to the poor family's house you have to go along that gigantic wall all the way down it almost feels like mad max level separation where it's like <laughs> people living at like the top of the castle and like then it's like the bottom yeah. and the absolute gutter and as though these are just two different planes of reality like heaven and hell literally separate like without any communication yeah. aside from yeah so you ascend to one and descend to the other exactly all the coverage that he gets in that scene of them going like of them leaving the rich neighborhood into the poor neighborhood and like how you get all these different angles of the staircases. So it really feels like not only are you descending, but like you're almost like going into all these different levels of, of hell or something. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's the thing. This assumption of, Oh, I just have to get rich. Well, okay. How? How exactly it's, do you plan on getting rich? Yeah, yeah. well, and I think you know, that that's, you... the, that, that's an important part of, I think, the kind of metaphor that's on display right there in that final sequence is like how Dimitri was saying earlier, like, you know, maybe the only rational thing to do in this situation is to try to become wealthy so you can buy the house. And it's like, yeah, but the film knows that that's impossible for that kid to do. Like, no one from where he started is going to possibly be able to accumulate the amount of wealth that he would need to have in order to purchase a home like that. Like he literally lives in a sewer. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no reasonable re- way that he could possibly be the person in his fantasy. And that is deeply embedded in the tragedy of that fantasy. It's this idea yeah. of like, well, nobody, yeah. like I'll be the one who gets out and makes something yeah. because there are these myths of these people who like, do it and and there's just enough examples in the world to show that it's possible to yeah. con- to convince yeah. people that that can be them too and like truly it almost definitely can't be you like also. 99.999% of the time right. no it doesn't happen yeah. 
you can be aware of how impossible it is and yet still have this like irrational well, hope because everyone time. thinks i'll be the one yeah. i'll be the one to you know what did you guys think about the wealth stone that was first gifted to the family by uh that clearly more privileged it's friend quite, of it's very metaphorical yeah and the fact that the kid was beaten <laughs> over the head with the wealth stone yes yeah <laughs> yeah, almost like like the 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 thoughts and dreams that the stone kind of inspires in them end up like literally very nearly killing him. Yep, and then entering his brain. I have to be honest, I think that that was like one piece that I felt was a little bit too much that I would have that I could have done without. <laughs> too on the nose. It's just like it's it's a little it's it's very on the nose and it's also just <laughs> like I don't know. I don't it's, think that hits like you over the head. It's yeah, exactly. It's a giant, <laughs> and it's just like it's this giant rock, and it's like I don't. It just feels it almost broke the reality a little bit, even in a very mm. heightened sense. And it's it's a very it's a blunt tool to uh, to tell its in metaphor what the film has been so able to finesse um, in interesting ways up until this point. Not that the movie is necessarily subtle, but it's just more mm. artful in most other areas than. It is any time that the rock comes into play. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found I, I found the moment that moment with the rock to be much more uncomfortable to watch than like any of the stabbing that happens oh, later. Man, I had a visceral reaction to all that. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would honestly flip where like mm. he would die and the sister would survive due to the injuries. And then there's you know the, the one guy getting killed with the skewer that still has grilled sausages on it that the dog then munches on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I did think it was a nice. Well, nice is a very tough word to say about it, but an, a nice <laughs> moment on the grounds of like class solidarity that the dad of the Kim family killed the dad of the Park family when he referenced that the basement guy was smelly. Yeah, yeah. Actually, doesn't he like put his? He puts his hand to his nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, and that's true. That's the moment that causes him to snap. <laughs> it's so horrible. It really is. The father of the Kims up till that point has been kind of the more laid back and relaxed in terms of his manner uh, and how he comes across up till that point. But he's the one who really, who like truly, truly just snaps mm -hmm. at that point. Well, and it's it's been built up so much. The, all the shots of his face clearly establish like, okay, this is all getting internalized. All of this, like, there's some really bad emotion, hate or rage or whatever that's like, building up inside him and it's just it's just it's a question of when not if well and what's really interesting about it is that it's not that the that the park family the rich family is truly awful at any point in time no they're yeah. just adorably naive well they're just they're not even naive it's just that they don't need to they're so insulated from harm that they can be trusting in this situation because Worst case scenario, nothing bad is really going to happen. They don't have anything at risk, truly. Like, what is the, like, if all of these people ended up running a con on them, which, like, who would really think that that was the case? But so it ended up being the case. What would be the absolute worst outcome for them? Nothing. Like, nothing bad is happening to them. All these people are running a con on them so that way they can work for the family. Like, that's, you know, <laughs> like, they're so insulated from harm that they have the privilege to be a little bit naive, uh, if you will. But they're also not shown as evil people at all. 
they're no. not and it would be so easy to have them be more caricatured as as villains or or care or even carelessly evil but what's nice about this moment is that it's just this flaw that they have where they just dehumanize people without considering it yeah yeah they're a little naive they're a little dumb they're a little callous i don't think that they're dumb i think that it's they not can a, literally afford to be yeah that's <laughs> the point it's not that they're it's not like if they were devoting all of their attention to these things i think that they are shown as capable enough people that they would have realized what was happening and stopped it they don't need to devote all of their mm. attention to it because it doesn't matter they don't have anything at risk that's what privilege is they're willfully ignorant yeah, and I think that it's meaningful that the thing that that undoes them is that just like careless dehumanizing that rich people do. And I mean, the fact that they don't figure out earlier is because they like the son notices that they all smell the same, like all of the all of the Kim family smells the same. And they just write it off as like, oh, yeah, well, poor people have to ride the subway and the subway is disgusting. So that's probably why they all smell that way. Yeah. And it's just like because yeah. they just dehumanize people who are economically less than them mm. at every turn. And I think that is really true. I mean, as someone who is not of means, but who has a lot of experience dealing with people of means, I feel confident in saying that, yes, that is the case. <laughs> there is a sense of like, no, we're nice, normal people, but the, but there is a hierarchy at play. And, you know, we will carelessly dehumanize people along that line when it suits us. And that is what is truly the most evil because it's humiliating. And it's the type of thing that will motivate you to do all sorts of things that you didn't think that you were capable of. I think the movie captures that well. It's like the movie perfectly embodies that phrase from Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's fair to say we all love this film. Any final thoughts? I just think that it's so great that we can have a movie that is both this effective on so many different levels. Like it could promote a very interesting conversation about classism in society and the dangers of capitalism. And it can also just be an exciting thrill ride that's funny and, mm. and thrilling and, mm -hmm. and, and absurd at points. And it gets to be all of those things. And that's just like, that just doesn't happen. And that's just a real testament to, <laughs> you know, cinema as an art form and, I'm so glad that people are getting a chance to see this movie, and I hope more and more people do. I hope it gets nominated for a lot of awards this award season, and that pushes more people who wouldn't have otherwise checked it out to watch well, it's, it. It's going to be the Korean entry for um, the foreign language Oscar. Yeah, it's basically a surefire win in Best International Feature at the Oscars. It has to. Mm -hmm. It might end up getting a Best Picture, and a lot of people <laughs> think it could get a Best Director nomination as well, so that would be really exciting. Because I think that would wait, get a lot more people to wait, see it. Wait, it might get Best Picture nomination? It might get a Best Picture nomination and Best it Director totally nomination. Should. Actually, this, yeah, like it's it's so rare that that happens, but I think it's definitely possible with this film. This, I, I love the fact that this movie is making waves. People, I mean, this is obviously not a blockbuster smash, but people are seeing it. People are talking about it beyond just, you know, professional film critics. Well, it was a blockbuster smash in limited release before it opened a little bit wider. Like their their per it had it broke all kinds of records for per screen averages of limited releases. So according yeah. to Wikipedia, the current box office is 120 million. That's worldwide. worldwide. Yeah, worldwide. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a blockbuster in Korea. It, it is it is noted. his highest grossing film so far. Yeah, and he is a, an acclaimed director who has made a lot of very successful films. It's like, what if Avengers Endgame also had like very interesting class consciousness like, debate <laughs> inside of it? You know, like it just yeah. 
This just doesn't happen. Wow, that that's a great metaphor. <laughs> it's very metaphorical. Yeah. And it feels just so prescient to the times. Maybe this isn't true about the whole world, but I definitely felt like you could have the same exact movie in America. Very, very little would not play. Yeah. Yeah. So I do feel like it gets at a universality. Obviously, there's like inherently Korean things about it, and I certainly don't want to like minimize the extent to which the culture is part of like the beauty of the film and like the motivation and sure. inspiration for the film and how it's based on a century mm. of Korean cinema. But I do feel like the film taps into a genuine like universal social observation, especially for our times, that mm. is super pressing. Yeah. 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 I'd say just my final thoughts on this. We didn't talk we didn't talk about the cast explicitly, but I just want to mention like they everyone is excellent here. There's no weak link. Yeah. And I think maybe the re maybe one of the reasons we didn't talk about them is because everyone's doing like everyone's complimenting this film and each other so mm. well that it's like I don't know if any performance like stands out ahead of others. They're all like just working so well together. But that's not a yeah. that's, the opposite of a slight against them. They're all so good that they make it feel like this well-oiled no, it's, machine. It's that paradox of when something is so good that you don't even think about it because it's doing its job so freaking well. Yeah. Like how in so many movies you don't, yeah. you know, it, with so many great film scores, people don't even think about it because it's so perfectly meshing with the movie. It's the same thing with, with you know, with ensemble performances. Yeah, I mean, there's this, so the, the American Indie Spirit Awards has this award that they give out every year for... It's the Robert Altman Award for Best Ensemble in a Film. Ooh. And uh, Parasite wasn't eligible for it because it only is – it's an American Indie Spirits Award, so only American films are right. eligible for that category. Uh, but I feel like it should crush every ensemble awards that is out there because it's just such an incredibly effective ensemble performance. Yeah. Okay, I guess we'll leave it there for now, and uh, let's talk about where we can find everyone these days. So let's start with you, Noah. Where can we find your work? Well, all of my written film reviews and other writings can be found on my blog at francenoir.blogspot.com. I have a review of Parasite up. Yes. I read it. I would recommend everyone read it. As for me, you can find me at thecinemaverick.com. I'm also on Letterboxd at The Cinemaverick. By the time this comes out, I will have at least my favorite performances of 2018 because I like uh, being slightly out of date. Slightly. And uh, so you can you can read that. Let's go to you, Dimitri. Where can we find you on the internet? Um... Not really anywhere, I guess. <laughs> I, I <laughs> okay. As of right now, I don't have a presence of exporting any content, although in principle that may change in the future. Well, please let us know if it does. Uh, we loved having you on and, and hope to have you on in the future. Yeah, thank you so, so thank much. Thank you again for being here. You guys are a very welcoming group. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> and we will finish up with Alex. Where can we find you, Alex? So you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Media Thinkings. Over there at Letterboxd, you can follow me as I talk about all of the Star Wars films in in universe chronological order, um, as well as catch up on the on the 2019 film year as we approach uh, the best of season. You can also follow the show at Cinema Joe's 
on Twitter and Instagram, where you can find visual companions to every episode. Uh, you can subscribe to our show via Anchor or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or most other places you can find podcasts. You can also find uh, some of my written work at thepopbreak.com, where I've been writing about television, including uh, the CW superhero shows and a lot of streaming service debuts like uh, The Morning Show and The World According to Jeff Goldblum, which was really fun uh, to write about, <laughs> um, and lots of other things. So check me out over there as well. Awesome. Yeah. And I can, another, I've, I have been reading all your reviews of shows that I don't think I'll ever <laughs> see, but part of what's fun is just kind of getting a vibe of the show just based on your review and kind of gauging whether mm. it's in my interest. So, uh, keep up the good work. And also, uh, our Instagram is looking really good as well. <laughs> Thanks. Not to brag about ourselves, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> I work far too hard on those on those images, so I'm glad you're enjoying them. Well, it shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank all of our listeners and our subscribers. Uh, and for the Cinema Joes, this is Justin signing off.